Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from BearMarriage.com, where we like to talk about healthy, evidence-based biblical advice for your sex life and your marriage. And we have a great interview coming up today. I have a terrible cold right now, but don't worry, I recorded the interview before I got my cough and laryngitis, so I don't sound like this the whole time. But before we start that interview, something really important. Our marriage survey is live and we would love couples to take it. We haven't done this before. This is really cool. It's a matched pair um, survey. So you each take it separately, um, but then we're able to link up your answers. You don't see each other's answers. They're not sent to you. You can't see them as you're taking it, um, but we can do some really cool statistical stuff with this. So please take our survey, get your spouse to take our survey. Um, the link is in the podcast notes. And of course, before we begin, a special thank you and shout out to our patron group who supports us on a monthly basis and lets us do really cool things like this research project. So you can join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash marriage. And now here is our interview. Well, I am so thrilled to bring on the podcast today. Um, one of my like heroes in sociology. So this is Andrew Whitehead, who is a professor of sociology at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Um, Andrew, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, wonderful to meet you and to see Joanna again. Yes, and we also have Joanna Sawatsky, our wonderful stats person um, for our books, who has worked uh, with Andrew at getting our data sets up at the ARDA, which Andrew manages, which is, what is the ARDA? Do you want to just explain it quickly? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's an online religion data archive. So we will basically provide a, a place online for surveys like that you all collect and other researchers to live forever so that everybody can have access to them for free. And then, yeah, we provide a lot of different resources for folks that want to know more about their community. They can go and put in their zip code and get all this census data that they would want and religion data about their community. So yeah, we offer a lot of different stuff there. Yeah, that is awesome because yeah, Andrew's very passionate about yeah sociology of religion and and figuring out how evangelicalism and Christian expression, especially in the United States, um, manifests itself. Which is why you are here. <laughs> yes. So you have a book that came out I think in the summer called American Idolatry, um, which is great and which I read as a Canadian going wow, <laughs> <laughs> this is a thing. Okay. So um, I want I wanted to uh, work through it, and I just want to open with some questions that you opened your book with, and you said like you know a lot of people in their Christian journeys in the U.S. right now are asking questions like, if our nation was built on Christian principles, why did our forebears treat Native Americans so viciously? Why are some committed to ignoring this history today? Um, and as a Canadian, I mean, that's a question that we're asking too, especially yeah. with the residential schools, um, sure. uh, that problems that will not pro problems is, is far too light a word horrors that, that yeah. we did, uh, we, we perpetuated, um, if Christian theology so profoundly shaped our national values of liberty, human rights, and full equality, why did even the most devout Christian citizens enslave Africans, ripping them from their land and destroying their lives and families? Why did our political leaders and the people who supported those leaders bar Black Americans from the full rights of citizenship for so long? Why do Black Americans continue to face hurdles today? And then you go on to ask questions like, 
can we be faithful Christians and patriotic? Can we be faithful Christians and celebrate this country and our citizenship? Can we be grateful for this country without baptizing and rationalizing away all the evil perpetrated in its name? Yeah, that's what people are asking, right? Like it's, it's tough right now to figure out how to disentangle all this Christian stuff from like politics and from the narrative about our nature's hair or our country's heritage. Yeah, no, it really is. And, you know, in the book and in my broader work in this uh, topic, right, I, I come to it as a sociologist. So gathering survey data of the American public and analyzing that, just looking to see where where these things intersect, right? And what what does this actually mean? Not only defining Christian nationalism, but then too, just seeing what is it associated with? What types of attitudes? Um, and then also for me being a, um, a Christian, you know, that's a part of my journey as well. So it isn't just the professional work, but then um, wrestling with what does this mean for my faith? Um, you know, growing up in this country and growing up, um, as I share in the book, in a small community in Indiana, a farming community, um, and being raised in the faith where kind of everyone around you is Christian and we all see the world in the same way. Um, and I was taught, you know, these really foundational beliefs and values about what it means to be a Christian. So loving your neighbor and caring for those around you, all really important things. Um, but then as I, and like others began to look at our history and then try to wrestle with, well, exactly where does my Christianity or being a Christian, um, overlap with being an American and are these intentions sometimes, and starting to wrestle with like the questions that you mentioned, our history. And if we are a Christian nation, which for some folks kind of take for granted, um, for me, it was, well, then what does that exactly mean, right? How do we make sense of, like you said, these horrors uh, that were perpetuated on other humans? Um, what does that mean when we say this is a Christian nation or founded on Christian principles? And so, you know, that's really what began my journey. And I'm still on the journey. And, you know, with this book and this work, it really is kind of an invitation to others to to stay on that journey and to to wrestle with these things, even if we come at them, you know, from different places right now. Let's let's at least talk about it. Let's at least wrestle with it to see where can we as as Christians or as Americans or Canadians, whoever, right? <laughs> um, yeah, learn to follow in this this path of loving our neighbors well and really thinking about well, who are our neighbors, right? Just as the uh, the rich young ruler asked Jesus, um, yeah. you know, what what does that mean? So that's kind of the the overarching goal and and kind of project too. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so you open American idolatry with this statement. You said, in my own journey, um, much of which is reflected in this book, I've come to believe that in order to faithfully follow the teachings and example of Jesus of Nazareth, I must work to disentangle Christianity from Christian nationalism. The two cannot coexist. I must serve one or the other. Um, so like, first of all, I think that's really profound. And this is, this is a brave work because this can oh, get thanks. you in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> like, like you're just, you're just like walking in to the fray mm -hmm. of yeah. something that people often get quite upset about. Um, yeah. But I love it because you're also doing it as a sociologist. Mm -hmm. um, so as someone who is evidence-based and you, this is this, you, you wrote another book with Sam Perry. Do you want to talk about how those two books are different? Yeah, no, that's really great. Uh, 
you know, it's, and I think that's what is helpful to me to kind of bring both aspects of my journey and myself into this, right? So as a sociologist and gathering data um, and the work that we've done over the last, you know, 10 years or so that kind of culminated in the book, uh, Taking America Back for God, that's what I wrote with Sam Perry. And, you know, it's written to a, a broad audience. Um, and in it, we kind of marshal all the data we had at that point to look at, well, what is Christian nationalism? How uh, widespread is it? And then what is it associated with? What do we see, right? Um, for folks that strongly embrace it, what does that mean for how they see their social worlds? And, you know, we walk through the data uh, in that um, in that work. Um, and then what, what I found is as we did that, um, and what I appreciate about your work uh, for both of you and um, with Becca too, and um, you know, the great sex rescue and, and other work that you're, you're doing and ongoing with is, is gathering data. And for the people that interact with your work, you know, kind of coming to it and understanding the power of data, right? So when we do these surveys and we can, um, you know, use gold standard measures and questions and really start to get under the hood, not just of what we think is going on, but actually have evidence. And so, like your listeners and like the work you do, you look at the evidence and you start to think, okay, something's going on here that doesn't quite align with the values and beliefs that we hold true, right, in our faith. And I think as Christians, it's important to be willing to kind of hold up the mirror and look into it and see kind of with the metaphor, what do we have on our face? What do we, you know, if we have a bunch of stuff on there, we need to clean it off. We need to do better. And, and I think that's where survey research and sociology can help. So as I was working in this area and and doing the work in the first book, the evidence started to pile up where it started to me to look like, well, how, how could I strongly embrace this idea? Or even if I'd kind of been on my journey and walked away from it a little bit, but how could embracing this idea of a Christian nation really strongly, and then I see what it's associated with, um, how can I continue to do that when I know that the values and beliefs that I was taught you know, that were important to Christianity really don't align with this. So I'll just run through a real quick list, right? Mm -hmm. Of things we found in our first book that as it goes, I hope for others too, it starts to look and, and sound like, okay, yeah, that, that doesn't sound like Jesus's words or the, the message of the gospel. So we found um, in particular Americans that strongly embrace Christian nationalism we're more likely to believe that refugees from the Middle East pose a terrorist threat. There are Americans that strongly embrace Christian nationalism are more likely to deny free speech to religious minorities who they deem as a threat to the U.S. They're more likely to believe that immigrants threaten American culture, that immigrants increase crime, even though there is actually no evidence of that, um, and more likely to believe that immigrants are mostly dangerous criminals. They're more likely to be not at all comfortable if their daughter married someone who is outside their racial group. They're more likely to believe that police treat Black Americans the same as whites and that police officers shoot Black Americans more often because Black Americans are inherently more violent than whites. They're more likely to believe that Muslims, Jewish Americans, or atheists hold morally inferior values, want to limit personal freedoms, and endanger their physical safety, more likely to believe that women should just stay in the home and care for children and leave running the world or politics up to men. 
And so when I started to look at all this evidence, whether it's Mm -hmm. fear of immigrants or refugees, even immigrants and refugees who are Christians and not wanting them to come to this country to receive asylum or this fear of racial and ethnic minorities, it really became clear that Christian nationalism, based on this evidence, is about building up walls, right? And and Mm -hmm. saying there is a them who we should be afraid of, and then we need to do all we can to protect us. And when I read the gospels and when I read the words of Jesus as they're recorded there, and I look at his life, it it became more and more difficult to me to see that this is representing the gospel in in a way that is supposed to welcome and sacrifice and serve for others, for our neighbors, for those who are around us. So that's kind of been the journey for me is to wrestle with that data, to look at these values and beliefs that we've been taught and that we hold dear as Christians and seeing that they don't, they can't coexist in some ways, that we have to do the work of disentangling. Not that we have to throw away Christianity, but like in this next book, American Idolatry, trying to show that there are expressions of Christianity that we can move toward that confront and oppose Christian nationalism and are focused on loving our neighbors, on loving immigrants and refugees or um, those who are around us that might be different than us whether it's religion or race or whatever else. Yeah, I love that. And and that is what American idolatry does. It doesn't just call it all the things that are bad. You really do paint a picture of what it could look like if yeah. we actually if we actually embrace Jesus' words. You know, and, and I'm going to say something which is not entirely true and I'm I'm going to sound very naive, okay? So mm-hmm. all the Canadian listeners may not necessarily completely agree with me. But if I could just paint like a broad brush of the mm-hmm. difference um, while Canadians can get there, there, I think there are elements of some of these, this nationalist thinking too. And, and I think that accelerated around COVID and we've had our own issues in the church. There isn't a sense in the same way that Canada is a Christian nation as there is in the U S. Um, and there isn't the same sense of, we have this big Christian tradition to uphold. Like you can be proud of Canada without feeling like it was a Christian nation. And so this is really different. And Joanna, you actually, you grew up in, in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. and you now live in Edmonton, Alberta, where your husband works for a uh, provincial government. Yeah. What have you seen? Have you seen the differences as you moved? Oh yeah. I, I mean, I think part of it is that the Canadian national identity is in part, we're not American, which was <laughs> yeah. weird moving here and then trying to get Canadian citizenship as an American. Um, <laughs> No, I think the big thing, the big picture difference that I would describe is that, and this is not original to me, is that the U.S. is traditionally, the goal has been to be a melting pot. Mm. And Canada embraced a more mosaic idea of ethnic identity um, earlier. I think that's more the, the model in both places now. Now, again, Canada did not do great when it came to indigenous issues. Um, I studied that in my master's degree and it made me really, really angry. Um, So this is not a like one country is better than the other kind of a thing, but I do think that that's different. Um, I mean, I also think that it's different when you didn't fight a war. Like Canada was made Canada by an act of parliament in Mm -hmm. Britain. And I had to then uh, uh, profess my allegiance to the British monarch. And it just went against everything I believed in. I was like, I will do this only because I want to have the same passport as my kids. And I'm going to hate every minute of it. And I missed Queen Elizabeth by like two weeks 
or yeah. two months. She passed away in uh, September, and I took the oath in November. And I'm so salty. Uh, so but I think there's some yeah, of those you had things. To like, pledge allegiance to King Charles. Yeah. I did, yeah. yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I think that there's some of those things where it's 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 if your country is formed based on a truly heroic revolution, the ideals of American liberty did pave the way for the age of revolution that occurred afterward and um, really did change the world. Like they really did. Mm -hmm. And Canada doesn't have that amazing history to look back on of the revolution. There's not the same sense of the founding fathers were so like people like yeah. they people like the original prime ministers, but it's not talked about in the same way. There's not the hagiography, hagiography, I don't know, um, that you get in the States. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, because we don't all vote for the same political party like on the on Parliament Hill. Um, I know there's prayer groups of of NDP, liberal and conservative who all meet together. So it's not it's not assumed that Christians will vote Republican or conservative or whatever, um, mm-hmm. although there are tendencies. And I think it's getting more like that. Yeah, today. I was say in Alberta, it's more like that, I think. Today. Yeah, well, Alberta's, <laughs> Alberta's its own thing. <laughs> but Yes. Um, so I think that is a difference. But one of the things you talk about is just how um, how you see the gospel or, or 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 how the gospel has changed, depending on what group you're in. Um, and Andrew, you write that for a lot of of white American Christians, especially thinking that as long as we believe the correct theological claims and encourage others to embrace those theological claims as well, that we are doing all that we need to do. Like that's how we spread the gospel is about theological claims. And it's not about anything to do with community. That's like a really small version of the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. So that was something I had to wrestle with too. And, you know, with this book, you know, building on the foundation of of my research along with Sam and others of, of what Christian nationalism is and what we see it's associated with, you know, with, with this next book, American Idolatry, I kind of had to then move beyond the data because you know survey data can't tell us what the gospel is right so now i'm i'm moving into this area of kind of making a claim of of well, what is the gospel and how exactly does christian nationalism distort it right or or harm it in some way and and what i found um in in my journey and that what i'm trying to share is that i specifically kind of turned to one example um, of the gospel where Jesus in his first public message, um, as it's recorded in Luke chapter four, he outlines the good news. Um, so this is the gospel as he's saying when he kind of comes on the scene and he opens the scroll, it says, and he shares from Isaiah and, and I'll read it here. This is the NIV. Uh, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so when I read that, this is his first time um, on the scene and he's sharing, this is what I'm here to do. And it's really interesting too, because after that, where he stops that passage matters too, because later in that passage, it's about God kind of taking down their enemies, right? And coming and making it right. But Jesus stops. And so his listeners would have been expecting that, but now he just stops here. And so when I look at what he had to say there, um, what I see and in, in kind of the, the claim that I'm making is that the gospel is not just individualized, although it is personal, right? So mm-hmm. the gospel has something to do with each of us personally, 
But Jesus in this passage, and I think in his message throughout the gospels and um, in kind of the examples of his life, is that he makes a collective claim about all of us, the character of the kingdom of God and how we relate to one another. So it isn't just individualized forgiving my sin and then that's it. And now I get to go to heaven. And that's what I was taught growing up. And others would have heard that too, this Romans road, right? That you've fallen short. Jesus has come to save you, put your trust in him. Now he will go to heaven and that's it. I think that's a part of it, but I think it is incomplete because when we look at what Jesus is saying here in Luke, he's saying that I've come to set the oppressed free, right? To proclaim good news to the poor. So these people that are marginalized, he says they're within the bounds of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has something to say about the marginalized. And so it isn't just setting you free from personal sin, right? It isn't overly spiritualized, but he's actually talking about how we relate to one another. And so I think one of the the aspects of Christian nationalism is it cuts off this idea of how we relate to one another. And it just focuses on this personal, individualized, spiritualized, making things right. And that's all Jesus came to do. Because again, we find in the data, Christian nationalism really does perpetuate inequality among groups, right? It puts refugees and immigrants and those of racial and religious minority um, you know, groups down to benefit just one group. And so for me, when I look at the gospel and I think, okay, Jesus had something to say about how we relate to one another. It isn't just about my group or myself, but that the kingdom of God is about everyone flourishing. I think with that picture of the gospel, we can start to then really disentangle Christianity from Christian nationalism, or at least expressions of Christianity that are different from Christian nationalism that will focus on who is being marginalized and what can we do to meet them where they're at? Because again, we're following Jesus's example. So that's a little bit about what I try to do in the book and think through, well, what is the gospel and and how does that relate to what we find about Christian nationalism? Yeah. Okay. I have a theory. I have a theory. Can I go with my theory? Yes. You're going to like it. Okay. Billy Graham. Mm -hmm. Okay. Great man in many ways. Yeah. But as I look back over a lot of his work, it seems to me that he entered into the scene and then he did these huge crusades. And the whole idea was to get people to become Christian. And how do you become Christian? You say the prayer. Mm -hmm. And so Christianity got diluted into just you say this prayer and then you're in. So -hmm. very much that like get out of hell free card, right? Um, And so Christianity became about what you believe. Yeah. And we stress so much that, you know, it's by faith, not by works. And all of that is true. But James also said... (laughs) <laughs> you, know, you know, that faith that works is dead and that you'll, you'll understand, you'll see the faith by the works. Mm. And Jesus said, who loves me will, will obey my commands. And mm. so it isn't, so yes, we're saved by faith, but there needs to be a lot more than that. And mm. I feel like what a lot of Billy Graham and the evangelists and that whole mentality did to faith was it just, it, it made it simply, as long as you recite these words, you're all good. Mm. Um, And that's a very, like, that can make people feel really spiritually superior over other people, Mm -hmm. even when they're quite bad people themselves. (laughs) No, I honestly, I totally align with your theory. I think it's true historically what we see. And I think, 
yeah, being able to just say, well, this alone is the gospel, right? It does allow people then to ignore, you know, the the systems around them that are disadvantaging um, whoever, whether it's it's women, right? Right with the work that you all do, you're kind of uncovering how women are just placed at this disadvantage and is taken for granted. I think part of that, um, this view of the gospel that's really kind of focused just on this you know, perpetuates that. It allows folks to stay blind to to the mar- people that are suffering, the marginalized. And I think Christians and, and Christianity, I think better expressions of it are focused on the marginalized and what they have to do. And and so I think, yeah, owning up to some of that history is important. And so I, yeah, your, your theory, it resonates with me for sure. Yeah. Joanna, were you going to jump in with something? Yes, I have a question. Okay. okay. So Andrew, in I... <laughs> One of the things that really struck me in the first bit of your book was that you talked about how challenging it was and how uncomfortable it was to be confronted for the first time with ideas that contradicted what you'd been taught. Yeah. And we know that a lot of people, when they're confronted with that sort of data, they shut it down. You hit up with a nice thought stopping cliche and you move on with your merry way. Yeah. And so I'm wondering first, what do you think allowed you to push through that? And secondly, when we're confronted with people in our own lives who aren't able to push through that, what are we to do? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think, you know, one of the things that that I that I try to stress in the book and that I want to stress, you know, whenever I talk about it, is that again, we're all on a journey and we're all at different points of the journey. And it isn't as though anybody is wrong because they're coming into the discussion from a different place. Because we we can't just like come out of, you know, the womb when we're born and just have all the right answers to everything and just have this very clear understanding, right? Like we recognize that's not true. And so for those that may be further along or who have wrestled with this for years now, you know, being able to have conversations with those that maybe are coming to it for the first time and and allowing those questions and difficulties to breathe, right? Like just having them come out and it's okay to wonder, to question, to you know, not understand, to to want more information. So I think as as we can have, as you know, uh, whether we're Christians or we're interacting with folks outside the faith, if we can have space for good faith conversations and questions, I think that goes a long way. Um, and so I think part of for my own journey, what was most impactful, and I kind of share some of this in the book, is those moments when people that I trusted and I knew cared for me raised questions about how I was looking at the world that didn't necessarily just give me an answer like, Andrew, you should believe this way because look how wrong you are. More so it was, well, just think of the implications, you know, of this view. What, you know, what might the implications be of, you know, so in in youth group, a youth pastor who I trusted and cared for said, you know, what does it mean if as Americans, we just support America going to war no matter what, and we're supposed to go and and kill folks on the other side who may be Christians like us or even just killing other human beings. Like, shouldn't there be some dissonance for us as Christians? And for me in high school, and I look, you know, you could look back now and think, oh, it's kind of naive, but I have a lot of, I want to have kind of uh, grace for that person, right? In that moment, because this was the first time he had wrestled with that. First time that he had thought, well, maybe being American and just saying, yeah, let's go to war and and destroy our enemies 
and being Christian don't quite, maybe don't always align. And not that, you know, I have the answer to whether, you know, Christians should go to war or not. That's a, a whole other argument. My point is this caused me to then just think about those two identities and start to wrestle with that. And then as I wrestled with it, I started to look, you know, and try to read different things and different voices. And so that those questions, I think, create more room. So, you know, Joanna, for those who were connected with and, and I'm connected with folks who still, you know, embrace or at least sympathetic to Christian nationalism at times, I think what I try to do is to be, um, you know, truthful with where I'm at and how I might see it but to not say that they necessarily have to see it the same way in order to be quote unquote, right. Um, but then to raise questions. So if it's, well, you know, we're founded as a Christian nation, it might be for me to say, well, you know, which, which uh, expression of Christianity in particular, or if, if we were then, you know, as the questions at the beginning of the book kind of lay out, you know, why did we, you know, push indigenous peoples off their lands and then commit genocide against some of those groups? Why did we enslave other human beings? And then in our constitution actually say they're worth three fifths of a human, right? So these are things that I want to raise questions about to get folks, maybe just not to take it. So um, taken for granted, oh, we were a Christian nation. Cause I think it's when it's taken for granted. And this is, if we're talking about Christian nationalism or, you know, in y'all's work, complementarianism, right? When it's mm -hmm. just taken for granted, that's when it's most powerful, Folks just believe this is the way that it is. But I think if we can raise questions that kind of shift the light a little bit and allow folks to then see, well, maybe this isn't taken for granted. Maybe, you know, there are other Christians who see this differently. Why do they see it differently? And then we get curious and we start to explore and we have places hopefully to have conversations. I think that's that goes a long way to starting to change you know, the hearts and minds and to see, you know, maybe we don't have this just figured out. Maybe this isn't taken for granted. What else should I be learning about or hearing about? And so I think that's kind of how I see my journey and, and the way that I, you know, hope to encourage others to continue on their journey wherever they find themselves. Right. I love that. Because I think what you're basically saying is like Christian and America and American are not synonyms. We just well, need to put some space between them. And it's okay to yeah. be really happy that you're an American. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of great things about being American, but being Christian is, is like the, the ultimate, right? Like that's, that's your main identity. And we have to yeah. see everything through that lens. Yeah. And they're well, not the same. Yeah. And I, and I, I like how, you know, we chuckle when we say that being American, being Christian, isn't one and the same. Um, Cause it seems kind of obvious, but then for me at one point in my life, I just hadn't ever thought of that, right. <laughs> that, yeah. that these things aren't coterminous or the mm -hmm. same thing. Um, and, and I think, you know, Sheila, you have, you make a great point that it isn't as though Christian nationalism is just patriotism, right? And I try to distinguish between those as well. So we can look at patriotism, this care and love and affinity for our fellow countrymen and women, right? So the Olympics will happen uh, this next summer and I'll be cheering for, you know, I love swimming, right? The, the <laughs> folks in the pool for the stars and stripes and you all be cheering on the Canadians and you have an incredible, yeah, young female swimmer, mm -hmm. uh, Macintosh, that's amazing. And so <laughs> it's not as though I just want to see her lose, but I want to see Americans win and we cheer for them. But when summer swims a world record, I can rejoice in that too, right? And so patriotism, this love and affinity for folks that we happen to be born in the same nation as, 
and we want to see them do well. We want to see them flourish, whether it's in sports or in life. Um, I think that is patriotism. Um, but it's not to the detriment of our neighbors to the north, right? We don't have to just see them lose that this isn't a zero sum game. And so I think that part of it, that's what distinguishes it from Christian nationalism because Christian nationalism wants to keep all the benefits to the small group of us, even against folks that were neighbors in our own country and especially other countries. And I think that's where it becomes harmful. And so patriotism too, um, as you kind of mentioned, is is not ignoring the difficult parts. We can't just wish that stuff away because with we love people like, you know, my spouse, she loves me um, because she'll tell me the truth, right? If I'm doing something wrong, she's going to tell me you're going the wrong way. And so if we cared about our country, wouldn't we also look at the hard parts and wrestle with that to find a better way forward? And so I think yeah, patriotism should should have both those, love and care for others, but not at the detriment of other groups. And then two, let's look at the hard parts so that we can live into what we hope and value is a, a place where where folks are free and enjoy liberty and, and, and justice for all. Right. You know, um, as you were talking about Christian nationalism, you were talking about the three big pillars um, that sort of support Christian nationalism, the idea of hypervigilance, you know, you're always under attack, <laughs> you know, us versus them. Um, what was the other one? Fear or? Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. So I look at different idols of it and then, mm-hmm. yeah. And one of the chapters, different kind of markers of, of yeah, the rhetoric itself. Yeah. You know, one of the things I found so funny um, is you were talking about like this, this, this feeling like hypervigilance, we're always under attack. We always have to be on. We always have to be because, you know, the the world is bad and it is trying to impinge on Christians. And you have these series of quotes from James Dobson of what he said at every presidential election over the last 20 years. Yeah. And it's so funny. Let me just let me just uh, read you a couple. Okay, so from 2004, there is a spiritual battle going on and we simply must let our voices be heard. If you believe there's a right and wrong, if you believe in absolute truth, it's all on the line tomorrow. And then in 2008, you said um he said that why did they risk our nation's future on Barack Obama? It was a mistake that changed the course of history. In 2016, I believe this great country is hanging by a thread. In 2020, hordes of angry anarchists are salivating over the next election, hoping to push America over a cliff. If they succeed, Western civilization will never recover. <laughs> That's kind of ironic in retrospect about the anarchists who are trying to, yeah push Americans off but yeah. like it's like every election everything hinges on this mm. we need to get out and vote everything hinges and you see that like every like I could write the political speeches mm-hmm. for the candidates you know because they're always going to say the same thing yeah but I and you know I used to be really into politics like seriously like I would read pol- political blogs three hours a day it was it was bad okay mm-hmm. <laughs> like I was I was a total addict And what I found, and then one day I just quit cold turkey because I couldn't do it anymore. But what I found was that I was always angry. Mm. You know, like I was always angry. And I, I really, I really assumed that anyone who didn't believe just like me was honestly trying to destroy the very fabric of society, Mm. like that they were nefarious and malicious. And it wasn't a nice place. It wasn't a nice feeling. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think so much of, you know, political systems do, um, and, and, and media is a part of this as well. Um, people get motivated when they're afraid and have a sense of threat. And so we do see it, um, no matter which end of the political spectrum you might find yourself on, um, that we're supposed to be afraid and fear and, and move out in that. And so I think too, as, as Christians and, you know, folks representing various expressions of Christianity, thinking through what are the messages that I'm listening to and, and what are they doing inside of me? Are they moving me towards love and care for the marginalized or others around me, my neighbors, or are they moving me, you know, towards wanting to put up walls and destroy my neighbors or, or whatever else? Um, and so I think that's where for Christians to be, I don't think that we should say, well, I just opt out. Um, because I think in some sense, that's a sign of, of privilege. Like if you can opt out of politics and your life doesn't really change, then the politics work for you. But there are a lot of folks who the politics don't work for. Wait, wait, wait. you got to say that again, because that's yeah. actually pretty profound. <laughs> say yeah. that again. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think saying that as Christians, well, we just opt out of politics. You can do that um, if you are in a place of privilege, because it shows yeah. that the politics are working for you. Um, if you opt out and your life doesn't change, those politics work um, and they work for your group. But we know political systems don't work for everybody. Um, and so that's where for Christians, I think we do need to be involved, but to whose benefit and to what end and, and how expansive is the we, right? The folks that we want to see benefit. And I think that's where listening to the voices of the folks who are, are marginalized or being hurt. Um, and listening to what they're saying, their experiences, and then wanting to do what we can to change those things. Um, whether for me as like a, a, a man in Christian spaces, hearing the experiences of women, right, that you all elevate, right? So I read your book, um, the, the Great Sex Rescue, and it's really challenging, revolutionary, because I'm hearing these voices, not that I haven't read books like that or heard it before, but again, hearing those voices. So for me, then I can't just be like, well, I don't want to get too involved because I can do that and it all works for me. Right. In a complementarian space, I'm good. Like yeah. <laughs> it doesn't help at all. But I, I recognize this is not the way of, of Christ, right? This doesn't represent, I think, um, what he was about. So then I need to speak up. I need to get involved. And so in the same way for those of us who, you know, think that we should just opt out, I don't think we can. I don't think we should. I think we're called to be a part of it to listen to the voices of those who are being hurt and then do what we can to, to leverage our privilege in order to help, help those folks in politics or in social spheres. And so I think fear really does keep us from wanting to do that, being able to do that. Well, it distorts our, our vision of those outside of our group. Right. And it distorts our vision of God. And that's why I call fear an idol in this book is that it really does distort how well we're seeing those around us and then how to act in love toward them. Um, whether for me, you know, if I'm more politically or religiously progressive for those that may see the world differently, how can I act in love toward them? Or if we're more conservative, how can we act in love toward those who are different? And, and Christian nationalism, I think really is focused on fear and, and building up those dividing walls. Yeah. Cause yeah, when you see the world's us versus them and you see that they are attacking me, then if you attack them, it's justified. Mm -hmm. If you deny them rights, it's justified because they're bad people. Right. So if they, you know, if, if, if you want to elevate, um, 
you know, your rights to determine what morality is, that's okay because you're right, but they're, they're bad. And so their ability to, to change anything needs to be taken away because we can't trust them. And so it's actually quite anti-democratic. Yeah, no, you're, you're right on. And that's a lot of the work too, that, that we've been involved in and that, that I'm, uh, you know, have in the book, but then do more broadly is it really is anti-democratic to where we want to limit who has like voting uh, is not seen as a right of every citizen, but as a privilege mm-hmm. and privileges can be taken away from those who aren't worthy. But with Christian nationalism, it has a very particular vision of who's worthy. It's folks that align with these very particular elements of it and everyone else. And a lot of times this falls on ethno-racial lines on those who maybe uh, you know weren't necessarily born here, right? They can't participate. They can't benefit from society. Or you know what's so bizarre? The repeal of the 19th Amendment movement that's starting. It's all mm-hmm. over social media, you know, to take away women's right to vote because women tend to vote Democratic. Yeah. And there's so much of that that's come up in the last two years. It's like, are you nuts? But that's, it's, yeah. it's it's really scary. Okay, right. to get one, one of the other things um, that I find with the Christian nationalist movement is that, well, you, you take that passage from Luke four that you read, right? Mm-hmm. When I, when I read that, um, when I was more in an evangelical church, it was explained to me that the way you set the captives free is you tell them about Jesus, Jesus dying on the cross for them. Uh, yes. And the way that you preach good news to the poor is that in heaven, you will, you know, it won't mm-hmm. be like this. And so it it is all spiritualized and you have, I'm going to read a longer quote. Cause I thought this was so interesting. Um, and you were talking about the murder of George Floyd, yeah, which happened on May 25th, 2020, because I will always remember because it was my 50th birthday. But um, uh, and you talked about how Franklin Graham talked about it. And I just I just need to read this. During the protests over the murder of George Floyd by a white police officer, Franklin Graham was asked if evangelicalism has a race problem. Graham said no. He went on to say, when we get to heaven, a white skinned person like myself is going to probably be in the minority, but we're going to be there to worship the King of Kings. And our skin color is just so many cells thick. Graham's remark echoed those of his father during the civil rights movement. When asked about addressing the country's racial inequalities, Billy Graham said, only when Christ comes again, will little white children of Alabama walk hand in hand with little black children. Turning conversations from this life to the next is common among white Christians faced with uncomfortable racial and social realities. Rather than confront and rectify racial inequality here on earth, both Billy Graham and Franklin Graham pointed to the life to come where one group will not be lifted above another. I think this is okay, Joanna, you're the one who introduced me to this to this phrase, but isn't this kind of spiritual bypassing? Kind of, yeah, because you're well, essentially you're saying I cannot uh, deal with this reality because I can pass the buck to the world beyond, which I have no ability to control. Right? <laughs> you can control what happens today a little bit with your vote, with where you spend your time, how you spend your money. You can't. It's, heaven's heaven. You're not in charge. Yeah, and when people say, "Well, don't worry, because it'll all be great in heaven." It's hard to argue with that in a way because it sounds so spiritual. Mm-hmm. And if you argue with it, well, don't you want, don't you understand that the ultimate is heaven? And it's like, well, yeah, but. <laughs> totally. Well, and and so this is another way that I think about it. I think spiritual bypass is really, uh, yeah, a great way to think about it. And it do it, it is, it's so difficult to talk about because it's like, well, yeah, that may be true, but it doesn't change 
the situation we're in right now. And that's what we're looking at. Um, and so the way that I like to think about it, and this has been impactful as I try to think about, well, what is the gospel? What is the good news? And what I do is I, you know, in my imagination, think how how far back would I need to go in American history, let's say, to where um, the gospel and good news may not sound like good news if all we focus on is an individualized kind of fixing of your spiritual condition and then in heaven, you'll you'll be good. And you don't have to go back that far where there's going to be certain groups where that isn't good news necessarily. So if we go back to the Jim Crow South in the U.S. and, you know, so for those that may may not know that history, this is where um, essentially a bunch of rules are set up in the South that keep African-Americans kind of lower class, right? They, they can't get the right types of jobs. Uh, a lot of violence is just kind of looked you know, people look the other way. They, you know, can't go in the same bathrooms or use the same water fountains. And if we go there and say, you know, to to these folks like, well, you know, accept Jesus, Jesus, you know, sacrifice. He's now your savior. You'll go to heaven and, and all be well. Is that good news? Or if they're working on a plantation and we go back another 60, 70 years and they're enslaved and we say, you know, you're a sinner and Jesus came to save you, and now you will be able to go to heaven and be saved. Is that good news to the person who is in their embodied reality in chains? And and I can I can't say that that is good news. If if it just stops at their spiritual condition, I think God has something to say about those who are in literal chains and oppression, and that. That is the fuller expression of the gospel. When Jesus in Luke 4 is saying those things, he's actually talking about real embodied marginalization and oppression. And yeah. so and, and to bring up the, the last thing that passage says is um, Jesus says, today, this has been fulfilled in your presence. And he sits down. So mm -hmm. he's saying this is fulfilled today. Not in three years after he's crucified and rises again. Yeah. <laughs> right. Great point. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So that's kind of, I guess, where I get kind of, it gets me, you know, really, I guess, worked up. Maybe you can hear it, but uh, <laughs> just thinking about, yeah, what would actually be the good news and and what can we be about today where we recognize that it has something to say with where people find themselves and we can be a part of that work. I think that's part of the work of the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Andrew, you are like you're a fairly young guy. I'm not going to ask you how old you are. Cause that's just like not a question you're supposed to ask, but you're fairly young and you're one of the most oft cited sociologists in papers. Um, aren't you like, uh, I mean, there's, there's folks with a lot more, but, um, like Sam, you know, he's, yeah. he's Sheen, but yeah, I've, you know, it's, it's been fun working with like with you all, you know, you get, you find people that you work well with and then, uh, you can be productive. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I mean, you're, you're very, you've done a lot of work, like a lot of peer reviewed papers. You're, mm. um, very well written. Um, you've done so much research, so much evidence-based stuff. And I, I really appreciate that. Cause that's, you know, and, and, and you're the one who's really done it. Like you're the gold standard. We're just trying to, you know, <laughs> we're, 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 we aspire to be like you kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but one of the big issues that that we've had, and I'm sure that you've had too, is when you bring things to people's attention, when you say, look, if you believe that, it's going to result in, in uh, you know, 38% greater likelihood of why, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Christians don't, a lot of Christians don't believe in science anymore. Mm -hmm. Like they don't listen to data. 
is there a way around that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, in similar ways to to when we're discussing Christian nationalism, I think making the case for evidence-based um, decision-making, it, it's similar in that sense where, well, why, you know, if folks are like, well, I just don't trust that. Well, why not? Like, what what exactly do you find untrustworthy about it? Um, and can they point to what you know they think is is going wrong or or you know the researchers went wrong and and i think this is where then you know as as a for me an academic and part of that is teaching then being able to say well you know when researchers gather their data um, and then we analyze it and then we publish it what we do is lay all our cards out on the table right so i just gathered a survey a couple uh, weeks ago i know you all gather a lot of surveys and and the whole goal is not to say, I'm not going to show you anything about the survey. It's just going to prove what I believe to be true. No, we say this is how it was gathered. This is who it was gathered from. So any um, you know information that we draw from the survey, these are the people that you could um, generalize it to, but this is the stuff you have to keep in mind, the limitations of it, right? That's all part of the peer-reviewed process in science. And science is not about we've proven this to be true and there it sits for all eternity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, science is we think this is true. We gather data, we test it, we find out if we're right or not, and then we gather more data and move beyond that. And there are things that five years ago, maybe we thought we had a lot of evidence for. Now we see it's actually more nuanced or it, it's different. And that's what science is too. It's more like building a bridge brick by brick. And every scientific study is a brick rather than I did a study or wrote a book and now here's your bridge. Um, Mm -hmm. That isn't science. That's, you know, kind of opinion based writing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I think just kind of helping folks and equipping folks to to understand, well, what are the differences and what can I look for? Uh, I think that can be helpful. So what gives you hope? What gives me hope? Well, honestly, um, a number of things, um, conversations like these, right, where we can come together and we can talk through kind of our own journeys, where we're at and challenge each other, right? And honestly, too, a lot of folks that some of the feedback with the book, um, you know, that I've been receiving has been great, where folks are reading it and it's encouraging on wherever they find themselves on the journey. So that was my hope, you know, with writing it and and that's coming true. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. And, you know, young folks um, who, you know, have faith um, and have a faith uh, system that they want to hold on to, but they recognize that what they've been handed or the way that it's operating now doesn't align with the beliefs and values that they were taught. And so they're already, so I'm, I'm 42, I'll just share that. <laughs> but, you know, I came to this type of work in these books, you know, later than some of the students that I interact with on college campuses, right? They have some of this stuff 20 years before I did. And so then I think of, well, where will they be? What will they be writing? What will I be reading of theirs, right, in 20 years? And I think, well, that's encouraging and that's hopeful. Um, and so, yeah, just for me, it's it's recognizing I'm not alone on the journey and there are others with me. I think that's what gives me hope and that we can we can learn from one another and encourage one another and I don't have to do it all. And others are, are with me on the journey. I think that's what, that's what gives me hope and uh, encourages me from day to day. Yeah. Awesome. 
So everybody listening, if you're like Andrew and you're starting to, or Andrew, when he was a little teenager and you're starting to hear these things that aren't sitting right with you and you're just not happy with the political rhetoric around you, you know, lean into that. You don't have to land in the same place that that we have i don't even think that andrew and us have necessarily landed in all the same places like i mean the three of us we all vote differently like it's not oh yeah joanne and i aren't even in totally the same place like (laughs) but we need to be able to talk about this stuff without seeing the other person as the enemy Mm -hmm. and um i think what's happened so much now is like if i agree with you 87 percent, you may as well be zero because unless Mm -hmm. you're 100 percent, it doesn't mean anything and that's got to stop we need to end the us versus them and the fear and the hypervigilance. And those all lead to like trauma responses, people like we don't want the political system, which is leading us to trauma responses. So um, do check out American idolatry. It's, it's, it's just a beautiful story of Andrew's journey and what he's challenging us to do. So the subtitle is how Christian nationalism betrays the gospel and threatens the church. So we will have um, links to American mm-hmm. Idolatry um, and to Andrew. Are you still on Twitter mostly or have you have you taken no, the plunge I, to threads? I am there. Um, okay. Is it mostly as a billboard? And and yeah, trying to to find exit strategies. One of those is I, I started a, a newsletter, a Substack newsletter. So okay. andrewwhitehead.substack.com. So it's the title of the book is the title of the newsletter to American Idolatry. Okay. Um, so I'm writing there and trying to, because I find in that space, and maybe you all are finding this as well, something like that, you can usually have a little bit more depth and a slower paced conversation, which I think is is my goal. So I'm there, I'm on Instagram, um, so okay. on some of the social media. So yeah, folks can hopefully find me there. Okay, so we'll put a link to your Substack in the notes as well, where you can find Andrew. So thank you very much. I appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks so much for the invitation. I appreciate the work, ongoing work that you all are doing. I so appreciate Andrew and you know he really has been an inspiration for Joanna and me he just he's such a great sociologist I did sociology in my post-grad work um, and he's so dedicated to good research and just to getting the word out there so do pick up his book and I would like to read um, another review for the great sex rescue too which came in but before I do that I feel like there's just something I want to say I I've been feeling badly about something I did last week on the podcast. I was reading some reviews and I read a one-star review, um, which which was a silly, a very, very silly review saying that our book was emotional and not based on research when it obviously was. Um, but I kind of made fun of the fact that the person didn't spell well. And, um, you know, that's that's been kind of grating on me. I think that I think I missed the mark on that one. And I want to apologize for that. Um, you know, that's not something that I should be making fun of. So the 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 content of of that review was definitely silly, saying that we were so emotional and there was no research. But the fact that the person didn't have good spelling really was not something that I should have been mocking. So I am sorry about that. I think I lost I lost the plot there. Um, but I would like to read another review that came in. This one's from Taya about the Great Sex Rescue. And she says, based on a rigorous study of 20,000 women, this book walks back toxic teachings from purity culture and beyond that that unknowingly did some serious damage in my life and marriage. The authors put clear words to the horrible teachings on sex and marriage that are constantly being pushed in evangelicalism. 
They replace them with a healthy picture of sex that is mutual, intimate, and pleasurable for both. My mind was completely blown, and I finally felt seen after laboring under oppressive cultural norms and twisted teachings of the Bible for years. I love that, that she finally felt seen. And so um, I hope that that's what this podcast does for you and what the Great Sex Rescue and She Deserves Better do for you. And um, for my American friends, this podcast is coming out a day early so that you can listen to it on Thanksgiving. I didn't want it to launch on Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving to all of you and to everyone who isn't in the U.S., just like me. I am currently in New Zealand, actually. I am recording this before I leave, but by the time this airs, I will be in New Zealand. I hope we all just have a great Thursday, even if it's not Thanksgiving, but we can be grateful too. And if you are in New Zealand or Australia, I will be doing some meetups with my husband. Keith will be um, just heading to some cafes in Australia and to, or sorry, cafes in New Zealand and some churches in Australia. And all the details are on our Facebook page. Um, so if you want to to come in Christchurch, Wellington, Auckland, Melbourne, or Sydney, we will be there and we would love to meet up with you. So head on over to our Facebook page and you can find out more. So happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Um, be grateful, even if you're not an American, and we will see you again next week on the Bear Marriage Podcast. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>